you've entered the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. So, David, you are recovered now, right? Well, I think I'm recovered. It depends what we're talking about. I feel a little less sick than I did a week ago. Yeah. Okay, well, that's good to know. It seems that something is going on these days. It's not a plot by the extraterrestrials or the secret government. It's that people are getting sick. My son has had sore throats, and I know a few other people who have gone through this. So this is something in the early spring season that happens. Change of the season stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. So you heard the introduction I did last week with Jeff Ritzman, but I asked him specifically, as you recall, about the Jim Sparks case. Mm -hmm. Now, we never had a chance to do a segue into our own opinions about that after the interview we did with Sparks. So maybe you have a feeling about what Jeff said, and maybe we can proceed from there. Well, I guess we got taken to task on the forums about expressing our opinions about the Sparks case. I heard what Jeff said, and I think it's really interesting how Jeff always plays the role of skeptic. And by the way, for those of you playing the drinking game, there's about four or five drinks in there. We mentioned Jeff four or five times. So uh, did you get any emails from people who were doing the drinking game while they were listening to last week's show? Not yet. (laughs) You're still recovering, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm recovering, but I don't drink. So what I recover from, I can't possibly describe. Oh, I, I, I wouldn't even attempt to theorize what that potential could be. Anyway, I heard Jeff's comments about the Sparks case, and I I think it's really fascinating how he always plays things down to a certain extent. Jeff is the uber-skeptic, and I really appreciate that in him. He even talks about how he's skeptical about his own experiences, about the notion of whether or not these are completely verifiable episodes or to what extent mind and psychology had to play in these episodes. I think Jeff is ever vigilant about understanding his own experiences, and I think that's a very useful stance to take. And I'm a little more skeptical about the Spark stuff than I heard Jeff express, though I haven't had a chance to talk with Jeff at length about the Sparks case. I don't know how much he's really looked into it. I know he listened to our shows about it. He's one of our biggest fans, Mr. Ritzman, and he listens to every show we do. So I know that he has some issues with it, I think I almost have more issues with it than Jeff does. I don't want to come out and just say that, but I don't really buy the Sparks story. I There's so many inconsistencies and problems. I think Jeff is being sort of politically correct and kind on the air, where, of course, as you all know, I, I like getting into trouble on the air by saying things that people either take the wrong way or take the right way, and maybe I meant the wrong way. Well, basically, politically correct is not in your vernacular. In today's world, Gene, with the incredible degrees of denial that as a society we push ourselves into as individuals we engage in, I can't play that game. I see too much stuff going on in the world, and I think... It's important to mention that I grew up in a third world country. I grew up in Venezuela. And that experience was, in some ways, very traumatic. But in other ways, it was very instrumental in forming what I consider to be a somewhat open worldview. In in the United States, those of us who live here uh, tend to consider everything from the point of view of what effect does it have on the U.S.? You know, any world event. What impact does it have on our country? When indeed, the truth of the matter is that this is one planet. Ultimately, we are one people. Nation states have been important things, but I think as we move into the future, 
maybe we need to evolve beyond the need for these artificial constructs, the things called nation-states, and maybe truly we do need to move towards a unified planet. Now, you know, that's the that's been a fertile ground for science fiction, but at this point, Gene, as we look to what what is potentially going to happen in the next 50 or 100 years to this planet, it's going to take the resources of the entire planet to deal with this, this idea of guarding national boundaries and preserving national identities, I don't know how useful this is moving into the future. And uh, growing up in Venezuela gave me a real appreciation for the good aspects of my country, the United States, and the bad aspects of it. And there are a lot of bad aspects of it. And I think that anybody who cares about their country has to acknowledge the fact that there are significant flaws. It's sort of like what happens when you reach a certain level of, uh, of maturation as an adult, and there's that point where you realize that your parents weren't perfect. Well, my son knows that already. <laughs> I bet he does. He reminds me quite often. No, he's, he's cool about it. He shows respect. Sure. But he also knows that you're a human being, and you make mistakes, and you're not infallible. And uh, I think that's the way we need to look at our government. That's the way we need to look at the institutions that we look up to for guidance. And uh, we need to realize that all institutions are nothing but groups of people. And often they're people with agendas. And that's the other thing about approaching the discussion of paranormal topics. We look to experts. We look to people who have done a significant amount of research. And we expect them to have... Maybe not all the answers, but we, we expect answers from them. And what I've found is that the best teachers, the best sources of information, are people who are constantly questioning, reevaluating their positions, absorbing, analyzing new information, and who are open-minded enough and flexible enough to modify their view of the world based on the changing dynamics of the world. I think that's really important, no matter what topic we're talking about, whether it's the paranormal, whether it's politics, sociology, psychology, economics, uh, science, any realm of science, take your choice. Our assumptions are constantly being overturned. We discover new species of life every year. So I think it's important to, to realize that human knowledge is constrained, it's well the fact of the matter is we're trying to use our brains which are imperfect at best to understand this incredibly complex system called the universe and uh, a little bit of humble pie would go a long way don't you think humble pie hmm i'll tell you what we need that every day a dose of humble pie every time there's a new scientific discovery that causes you to rethink what we thought we knew there should be humble pie Mm -hmm. The government should be doing humble pie about 10,000 times a day. Oh, and unfortunately, yeah. they're not doing it. And certainly anybody who claims to have the final answers on any of the subjects that we deal with on this show should be eating that humble pie a lot more often because we don't have the answers. And for various and sundry reasons that we mention every so often on the show, we're not going to get the answers unless we learn how to get along. Can't we just get along, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> I used to be very optimistic about that. Do you find, Gene, that as you get older, you get more cynical about the world? Is that just the bottom line of, of getting old, that one sees maybe a little too much? I don't think so, because I continue doing this show with you. I remain optimistic that what I'm doing will make a difference, and I know you do as well. 
that somehow, as hard as it might be with all the opposition out there, that we have carved out a space for the PowerCast where we demonstrate that we do it differently. We don't have to be cheerleaders to the most incredibly ridiculous, absurd claims. We can ask the hard questions. We can give people a chance We're not here to trash people. Well, maybe a few people, but for the most part, we're not here to trash people. We're here to try to find answers. And the people who won't help us find the answers, that's when we might do a little bit of trashing. Which brings up the subject of a strange character that we're going to be talking about in the next section of the show and in the section following. But fortunately, it won't be our entire show. Good. And we'll be talking next to Paul Kimball. He is a paranormal investigator, a filmmaker, and he has lots of interesting opinions. We're also going to ask him about a certain poll that he's running. And the title of that poll is... (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Oh, man. It's basically who do you trust kind of poll. It's kind of a who do you trust kind of poll. So we'll ask him about that and how it was inspired. And later on the show, we'll be talking to Kevin D. Randall. All coming up this week on the PowerCast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at one eight 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 ufo maga or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bienney. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey, Paul Kimball, welcome to the PowerCast. And I wanted to ask you, in your blog, The Other Side of Truth, and truth has many sides, but you have a poll here. And the poll is, who has more credibility? I want you to explain to our listeners why the poll. Well, because unlike so many people that are interested in UFO phenomenon, I have a sense of humor. So sometimes the only thing uh, you can do is laugh. And in in this particular case, it has a lot to do with uh, Cal Korf, with whom I and and you, you guys, 
Tice and Royce Myers and Kevin Randall and, and Mac Tonys and a bunch of other people have had either run-ins uh, over the last few months. Uh, he's written about us on his website or, or on the, on a certain radio show that we won't mention. And, you know, at some point you just sort of say, this is so absurd and ridiculous, and his credibility is so far in the toilet. Let's back him up, this arch paragon of logical, critical thinking and debunking and skepticism. Let's stick him up against some of the other great figures in ufological history that have a high degree of credibility, and let's see who wins the poll. So in the poll, we have Cal Korf, and he's running against some of the greats, uh, Stephen Greer, Linda Moulton Howe, George Adamski, Billy Meyer. <laughs> I think neither Billy Meyer nor Cal Korf have any votes yet. And of course, the Easter Bunny, because I think the Easter Bunny uh, is one of the great figures in ufological history, being a uh, sort of perhaps real, but probably not real creature. And so who has more credibility? I'm happy to report that in the early polling, the Easter Bunny is well ahead of all of these other sort of ufological figures. <laughs> and uh, that, that provides a, a warm and fuzzy feeling for me, that there might be some hope for ufology, that people would vote for the Easter Bunny over Cal Korf or uh, Philip Class or Linda Moulton Howe. That's a good thing. Or Michael Sala or Ray Santilli Ray or yeah. the late Philip Class and the late George Adamski. Philip Corso, the day after Roswell author. Yeah, all of those guys. The Easter Bunny, I think, is at about 50% of the total votes so far. And everybody and else is distributed proportionately. Yeah, I mean, it's early days, so um, I'll leave the poll up for a few weeks, and we'll see how the Easter Bunny fares. But I have a sneaking suspicion, knowing that the readers of my blog tend to be more intelligent than not, that the Easter Bunny's probably going to come out ahead at the end of the day. I have enough respect for the readers of my blog to believe that the Easter Bunny will be able to thoroughly defeat Cal Korf and all of his other friends from both sides of the wacky fringes of ufology. And uh, whoever would have thought that the Easter Bunny would represent the reasonable centrist middle of the ufological discourse, but there it is. And, oh. and as I, I should add, by the way, as I said in my post, I voted for the Easter Bunny because he brings eggs as opposed to these other people who spend their entire careers laying eggs. And uh, I'll always choose the guy who brings eggs as opposed to the layer of eggs. And, and chocolate eggs at that. Yummy chocolate eggs, that's right. Mm. By the way, the Easter Bunny can get into the White House, too. He's the only one on that list that can actually get to the White House where he lays eggs and they have that presidential Easter egg hunt. So if you want disclosure, Stephen Greer or Michael Sala, the Easter Bunny is your guy because he can get right there with the president and ask the hard questions that Stephen Greer and Michael Sala and the rest of the exopolitics people can't to the politicians. And I think if the disclosure movement wants to move forward, they should really pin their hopes on the Easter Bunny. And maybe they might want to work the Santa Claus angle too. On the Paracast, Paul Kimball, paranormal investigator, documentary filmmaker, and he has a blog called The Other Side of Truth. Speaking of The Other Side of Truth, let's spend a few moments and then we'll get on to important things. But since this is an April 1st show and we're talking to April Fools here, and that is the ultimate April Fool may turn out to be Cal Korf. Now, Cal Korf at one time did a decent amount of work supposedly, allegedly, on the Billy Meyer case. And people on both sides of the UFO question praised him for that. He was once a member of the UFOWatchdog.com's Hall of Fame. But things changed and suddenly people found themselves on the other side of Cal Korf's wrath. What's going on here? I don't know. Um, you know, I can't speculate as to what's going on with Cal Korf. His writing, frankly, was always pedestrian. 
uh, even his Billy Meyer stuff. I mean, you know, he's not a terribly good writer, but he did good research. He thoroughly debunked, as did others, the uh, Billy Meyer case. There's no question that the Billy Meyer UFO photos are hoaxes and frauds. And Kalkorf deserves credit for being part of the group of people, not working together, but separately, who, who went ahead and sort of showed that case for what it was, a fraud, a hoax. Fine. You know, flash forward 20 years or 25 years, and he's living in the Czech Republic and making claims of having 500 book deals and multi-thousands of television. And David, you'd certainly know that nobody gets thousands of episodes of a television series. No. I mean, that, that is... Even Law and Order doesn't get thousands of episodes. And just to put things in perspective about 500 book deals, Brad Steiger has written, what, 165 books, and we regard him as especially prolific. Yeah. I mean, look at Kevin Randall. Of all the UFO authors, Kevin Randall might be the most prolific. He's certainly authored a number of books. And, you, uh, what, maybe a dozen, two dozen on various aspects of the UFO phenomenon. So to think that uh, Cal Korf could have a, a 500 book deal, the only possible way that that could be true is if he was self-publishing. And he set up a, you know, Calcorf Inc. or something, some company, and then he claimed that that was his publisher and signed a deal. I mean, it's easy to do. I could do that tomorrow, sign a deal with a company I set up for a thousand bucks here in Canada, and then claim that's a publishing company. And oh, I have a five thousand or five hundred book deal with the company. I mean, I half expect that that's what he's going to do, and then he'll say, well, of course, that I have a five hundred book deal. Well, then we should all ask him who owns that company that he has the five hundred book deal with, and how long has it been in business? But anyway, he's, he's made a number of these goofy claims and, and frankly I wouldn't have cared one way or another. I hadn't given Cal Korf a thought since I read his Billy Meyer book many years ago and said okay, you know, good job but he came out, I think it was in December of 2006 with these claims that were quite public, picked up by a number of the major paranormal news sources like the Anomalist, that he was going to sue Ray Santilli and Michael Horn uh, for consumer fraud fine, you know, sue Ray Santilli especially uh, if you want for the alien autopsy hoax uh, for consumer fraud and see if you can make your case stick. But I'm a big believer that if you're going to sort of adopt that attitude of being the protector of all that is good and right in ufology or in consumerism, you should have a pretty clean slate yourself before you go after other people. So I was just reading through some of his claims. I just thought, I'll go to his website, I'll check out his bio, reacquaint myself with who Cal Corf is. And one of his claims was that he was an expert witness in the O.J. Simpson civil trial. Well, that's easy enough to check. All you have to do is go to any site, and Court TV will do fine, that lists the actual witnesses who were called to testify in the O.J. Simpson civil trial. And it took me five minutes. His name's not there. He's never claimed that he actually, in fact, he's admitted he never got on the stand in the O.J. Simpson civil trial. Fine. He's not a witness. And to make a very long story short, you don't need to be the world's brightest lawyer. You don't even need to be a lawyer. You could be a law student. Heck, you could pull out some legal dictionaries. That would be enough to know that you, in, a, in the context in which he's using it, the legal context, to be a witness, you actually have to sit on the stand, be sworn in, under oath, swear to tell the truth, all of that, and then give testimony. And then be cross-examined by the other side. That is the essence of what being a witness is. How do I know that? For many reasons, one of which is I've actually been a witness myself many times. When I was uh, stationed with the RCMP in Inganish Beach here in Canada uh, as a law student, I went out one summer and worked with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and because of some of the cases we were in, I had to go back over the next six or seven months and testify in trials. I know what being a witness is like. I've been there. I've sat on the other side and cross-examined witnesses and examined witnesses 
case in civil and criminal trials when I was at Dalhousie Legal Aid, when I was an article clerk. Let me tell you, he wasn't a witness. And the funny thing is, and I'll make a really, sorry, I don't mean to make a long story longer, but the one thing he focused in on, I sent an email to the Exxon radio show because he was on it, and I said, look, as a lawyer to the host, I said, as a lawyer, take it from me, Cal Korf is, was not an expert witness of any sort. And he has focused in on the fact that I said, as a lawyer, and he's gone on this rampage now, claiming that Paul Kimball lied, uh, which is strong words, so my lawyer tells me. Paul Kimball lied, uh, Paul Kimball lied about being a lawyer. He's not a lawyer. He's not a real lawyer, blah, blah, blah. Let me put something perfectly clear to Mr. Korf right now. I am a lawyer. I have been a non-practicing member of the Nova Scotia Barrister Society, which is the body that regulates lawyers in this province, since I uh, passed the bar exam and was called to the bar in front of a Supreme Court justice in 1993. It's all part of the public record. I pay my dues every year. I'm a dues-paying member. I just happen to have non-practicing status. Now, I didn't think it was necessary in a short email to point out the finer points of practicing versus non-practicing barristers and solicitors in the province of Nova Scotia. But if Mr. Korf really wants me to do it, there it is. But that's irrelevant, because what Korf didn't do and has never done is answer any of the sources I cite that show that he couldn't possibly have been a witness by any legal definition, which included every legal dictionary I could get my hands on in the office, especially Black's, which is the Bible of legal dictionary. And just for Mr. Kors' reference, I happen to know practicing lawyers, too, many of them. I'm engaged to one, practicing member of the Nova Scotia Barrister Society. I asked her. I asked my, my dad, who was for 25 years a criminal court judge. He dealt with more witnesses in one hour than Cal Korf has seen his, in his entire life. I asked friends of mine who are lawyers. Every single one of them said, of course, if you're not on the stand, you can't be a witness. His claim is an exaggeration. And then, gentlemen, an expert witness is an even different kettle of fish. To be an expert witness, you have to be qualified by a judge in a trial after what we call a voir dire, where they examine your bona fides and say, look, is he really an expert, blah, 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 and then the judge can say yes or no, he is an expert. You can't possibly do that unless you're on a witness stand. So all of these claims, this whole brouhaha about the expert witness thing, which really put me in his bad graces, he's never answered that um, because he can't. He knows he wasn't an expert witness. If only he would just come forward and say, you know what? I did exaggerate. I wasn't an expert witness. I was a consultant to the O.J. Simpson civil team, and I provided advice to them, and I could have been called as a witness, but they chose not to. If he said something like that, fine. <laughs> If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com, and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to 
news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. During the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, we're talking with Paul Kimball, documentary filmmaker and paranormal investigator, and we're talking briefly about the breakdown of Cal Corf. David had a fast question before we move on to other stuff. Well, the, the thing is, it, more than a question, when Corf brought up the whole 500-book deal thing, and that immediately rang to me as being very problematic uh, in that there is no such thing as a 500-book deal with anyone, Paul and, and Gene. So what I did was I called up Prometheus Books, the, pers- the publishing house that's published Corf in the past, and I spoke to Stephen Mitchell, the editor-in-chief there, and uh, asked him about this 500-book deal. And the reason I did this was that my interest interactions with Korf had started last fall when he contacted me because of the work that the Paracast had done on debunking one of the specific Meyer images, and, you know, certainly it's easy to debunk any number of them. But um, Korf had contacted me wanting me to supply him with all of the image processing research work that I had done. And I said, well, what are you going to do with this? And he started going on about uh, book deals, and I would have my own book, and he would get me published with Prometheus. And I said, well, you know, are you an agent for Prometheus? So, well, no, that's, it's more complicated than that. I have this huge book deal with them. So, um, you know, and then I said to him, well, forget about it. I'm not going to give you anything until you tell me a little bit about what you're actually doing and, you know, who's backing you up on any of this which then basically set him down the path of attacking me in sort of a really virulent, strange way that almost seemed to me to be irrational. So I, I've spoken to the editor-in-chief of Prometheus Books, this fellow Stephen Mitchell, who, with some degree of uh, consternation, got on the phone with me and told me that he was not happy having to, to discuss CalCorf with anybody, uh, told me that Corf had exactly one book signed with them, a one-book deal for a Secret Wars book, and that that was it, and that he wasn't willing to comment on Corf any further because he was tired of having to deal with it. I asked this fellow, uh, Stephen Mitchell, if Corf had talked to them about essentially being a representative for them, cutting book deals with other authors for them, and this guy basically said, what in God's name are you talking about? So, you know, so much for his 500-book deal as far as Prometheus Books goes. Yeah. No big surprise well, there. The, the sad thing, and, you know, we should probably move on to more productive pursuits, but I think it's important yeah. because Corf even now, is still a name in the UFO field. And the danger here, especially with the Meyer case, reasonable people are always going to see the Meyer case for what it is. But if you, do, if you wander into ufology and you don't know the players and everything, you it's possible that the Meyer case, some parts of it are seductive, shall we say. And it's possible you could get sucked in. And what the Meyer people will do, I have no doubt, they are sitting back with glee at this. Oh, yeah. And yeah. they will use this and course 
current, I don't want to say breakdown, but problems, credibility problems, <laughs> they will use that against him, fine, but then they will use it to buttress the Billy Meyer case, which is complete um, and utter bogus nonsense. Yeah. And that is my concern, that whatever good work Corf did in the past, and possibly even on Roswell, although there were far stronger anti-Roswell authors, Carl Flock wrote the best book on, on the anti-Roswell side, and most of the research was done by a researcher named Bob Todd. Both Flock and, and Corf drew heavily from Todd's research, as Flock and, and even Corf have acknowledged over the years. The concern would be that these sort of wacky claims that he's making now and these rants that he's going on and these jihads against respectable UFO researchers and authors and writers and filmmakers, all because his own ego has been bruised, will undermine the work that he's done in the past and will give people uh, like Michael Horn and Billy Meyer and their, their acolytes aid and comfort. And that is a shame. And so I hope that we can separate Cal Corf's current problems from some of the good work that he might have done in the past, but also always remind people that he wasn't the only one who debunked the Billy Meyer case. There were many others, and David, you've done it yourself. So the Billy Meyer case does not stand or fall on whether Cal Corf is a credible person or not, and I think that's important to stress. Sure. Along those lines, Paul, I also think that it's really sad that the UFO field, which already suffers from one of the greatest credibility problems that you can assign to any field, is being harmed even further with this. And outside of the Billy Meyer case, Korf, being someone who has done some productive work in the past, is now showing what I do consider to be some sort of a mental break. And that people who would normally criticize the UFO field for the wackos and the crazies that are in it, now have another poster boy to point to and say, hey, look, this guy is supposedly one of the heroes of that world. Look at how wacky he is. It disturbs me because of the fact that it's so difficult to have any kind of a rational discussion about this stuff. And, and along those lines, Paul, I want to ask you about your opinion of this Rob McConnell guy with the X-Zone radio show. I'll tell you what, before you give the second part of that question, yeah, we'll make it a two-part question. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And we're talking to Paul Kimball, documentary filmmaker, paranormal investigator, and I guess we're looking at the state of paranormal research right now. David, you asked part one, what is part two? Why is someone like McConnell give someone like Korf 
a weekly platform to basically disseminate this nonsense. How? Why does this happen in the realm of paranormal radio, Paul? Let me begin by saying I've been on the X-Zone a number of times mm -hmm. before all of this came down. Rob McConnell was very supportive of me when I ran my New Frontiers Symposium back in October. He gave all of the speakers, Stan Friedman, Rob Zimmerman, a bunch of others, Mac Tony's um, time on his radio show. And so I was very thankful for that. Now, the X-Zone is what most paranormal mainstream radio shows are, and it's syndicated um, in Canada and the United States and a few other territories. I mean, you have serious people on occasionally, and then you have goofy people on, um, sort of psychics that charge you $5 for a reading or something on the phone. I don't know, whatever. So, you know, it's a mix and match. It's, it's kind of like coast to coast. It is what it is. Fine. But McConnell, there's no question if you listen to previous shows, is a supporter of Billy Meyer. Not the UFO photos, and he was fairly clear about that, but he did at one point, um, not that long ago in 2006, claimed that Billy Meyer was a great prophet of the 20th and 21st right. century. I heard Obviously. that. I heard that. Yes, Paul. Yeah. So it does make you wonder why this host, unless he's had some huge falling out with the Meyerites, which hasn't been made public, there's no evidence of that, unless he's changed his opinion on Billy Meyer as this great prophet, and I've heard, I haven't heard him say that he has, why he would bring on for two hours every week Cal Korf, who is the poster child of Billy Meyer debunkers. It does sort of make you wonder. So anyway, I sent Rob an email um, back in January when Korf was on, and I said in the email, and I had these emails, Rob, why are you giving time to Cal Korf? And I didn't say because you support Billy Meyer, I just said because Korf sounds like he's out there. McConnell's response to me while he was on the air was gathering evidence, and my response to McConnell was in French, je comprends, or I understand. Who knows what he meant by that? What I understood it in the context to mean was that he was gathering evidence against Cal Korf. I tried to warn Korf of this through mutual friends um, mm. because I have no desire to talk to Korf personally but I've sent word to him through mutual friends that I said look I think you're being scammed that they're putting you on the radio two hours every week to make a complete and utter fool of yourself so that at some point they'll pull the rug out from under you that would be my read do I know that's what McConnell's mm. doing for sure no is that my suspicion as to what they're doing yes and I think it's if that is what's going on I think it's reprehensible and if that is what happens then I think it's reprehensible and I think Rob McConnell should be held accountable for it because you're playing with a guy who seems to be in a fragile state and you're you're putting him on two weeks and basically letting him hang himself and I don't think right. despite the problems I've had with Calcorf I don't think Calcorf deserves that I don't think anybody really deserves that so I hope I'm wrong I hope you know McConnell's sort of seen the light on the Meyer thing and now he's he honestly believes that Calcorf is a great guy if that's the case good however that's not what I believe is going on here and like I said I've tried to warn Cor for that and apparently he's gotten the word and, and he's chosen not to listen or whatever he believes McConnell fine don't say you weren't warned Cal because I know you were through intermediaries and I was the guy that was sending you that word so that's what I think is going on gentlemen well uh, I'll tell you what I ask you one thing here which is a subject we might explore is Cal Corf basically putting us on I mean there was a guy a number of years ago who went around the U.S saying that he was part of an organization that was against naked animals. And he called his organization the Society for Indecency of Naked Animals. And the whole point, of course, was a put-on, okay? Yeah. A guy named Alan Abel 
put on artists. Now, the question is, is Cal Korf doing the same thing in his own rather twisted way? And that is putting everybody on, watching how they react, and then saying, ha, they believe me. How could they be so stupid? I actually believe that that is what he might be doing. And I've speculated about that on my blog uh, and in other places. Um, and that, you know, Mac Tony's called that my generous interpretation. Others don't believe that. I would like to think, you know, that maybe that's what Korf is doing. In which case, at the end of it, I'll have a good chuckle because you and I and Royce Myers, we weren't fooled. We saw through these claims and, okay, they're all bogus. Now, you know, he's got us going at him, so maybe he's having a good chuckle over that. I don't know. But he has brought in other people that are working with him. Ironically, people that he, you know, has bashed in the past, like Philip Mantle. So maybe this is Cal Korf's revenge against the UFO field, which pretty much shut its door in his face um, all segments of the UFO field seven to ten years ago, and very little was heard of Korf in the intervening years. Well, maybe he's resurfaced with this sort of grand practical joke, and given McConnell's views on ufology, maybe he's in on it. I don't know. There's many different possible angles as to what's going on here. The most likely is that Korf is just being Korf, and if you look back at his record over 10 or 15 years, the all-caps tendency that he uses in his emails to shout at people, the grandiose claims, and I put one up on my blog in, that in 1997 he made this huge claim that he was going to sue the government and have this, all this research out, and nothing ever happened. So he's got a history of making these big claims and not doing anything, because people have short memories, and he probably knows that. So maybe this is just part of his consistent pattern over his career. Maybe it's a spoof, or maybe Maybe he really is having, you know, <laughs> some sort of breakdown. Well, either that or it's basically another variation of what we see on shows like American Idol, where people who must know that they cannot sing to save their own lives get up there, get in front of a camera, get on a microphone, and sing just because they're so desperate for any amount of attention. I've come to believe this is what Michael Horn is all about. He's so desperate for someone to listen to him that yeah. he'll get up there and say the most outrageous stuff just because someone's listening. Yeah, no, I agree. Agree, and that's there in the UFO field. There's an awful lot of that, which is why I have res so much respect for people like Dick Hall. And even though I disagree with them vehemently on certain things, uh, and have done so publicly lately, Jerry Clark and others, because they're not shouters. They generally, you know, don't go on television. They stay away from the conferences. They do their work. They participate in a few discussion groups, and that's about it. And they write their books, and, and off they go. I mean, that's serious research, whether you agree with them or not. And then you have people that like Cal Korf that seem to have to be on television all the time, or Michael Horn who seem to have to be on every radio show and, and conferences. They just have to be out there. And there is some sort of psychological explanation for that, I suppose. I'm just not a psychologist, so I don't know what it is. But Kevin Randall is, so maybe you can ask him about it sometime, um, hmm. why people are impelled to do that sort of thing. But yeah, you're right. They're publicity seekers. They're, they need their 15 minutes in the, in the spotlight, no matter how small that spotlight is, and ufology is pretty small. And and when that is over, they want to get another 15 minutes. So the usual thing is they keep ratcheting their claims up to be more and more outrageous so that the spotlight will swing back on them again. And eventually the act runs thin and nobody listens anymore. And I think Cal Korf has probably reached that point. I don't know whether Michael Horn has or not. He still seems to have a small audience. But they're tough guys to deal with. They're two sides of the same coin, Cal Korf yeah. and Michael Horn. Yeah. They, the marriage made in hell. And yelling. 
Yeah. 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 So let's turn the light on you for a moment, Paul. Why is it that you spend so much time and so much of your filmmaking effort on this topic? What is it that's pulled you in and, and made you so compelled to even get on our show and talk about it? I'm curious. Dirty, filthy lucre? No. <laughs> Sorry, it's sex, kind of a sex pistol thing. There, look, you know, I make no bones about it. You can, uh, in my case, uh, this best evidence will be the fifth film I've made about some aspect of the UFO phenomenon. You know, it's a job for me. So when it comes to making films, that's what I do. And if I if I find niches that I can sell films to networks to, duh, I'm going to do films about them. I also happen to be uh, personally interested in the UFO phenomenon from a, from a research point of view. Um, I have been for about seven or eight years. Stan Friedman's my uncle, so I grew up listening uh, at family reunions as a kid to Stan talk about UFOs. My dad had some books. It, it personally interests me, which makes it much easier for me to become involved in making films about it. But I also tell people, I say, look, I make films about a lot of other stuff, too. I did two seasons of a classical music series for Bravo here in Canada. I've made films about pro wrestling and, and the blues and, and all sorts of other stuff. So while I sometimes get introduced at, at parties or whatever up here as the UFO filmmaker. It's not the majority of the body of work that I've done, but I do, you know, I have sort of turned myself into a UFO pundit or whatever and a UFO researcher, but that's because it interests me. Uh, and I find the subject interesting, and you guys should know this. For your own purposes, it's a mystery. So I'm intrigued by mysteries, and UFOs just happens to be the one that I find interesting. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. We're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to Paul Kimball, and he is a documentary filmmaker. We'll put that first. And yeah. then a paranormal investigator. How's that work for you? So far, so good. Okay. <laughs> After that, it just goes downhill. Pretty much. You get into the lawyer thing, and, and it, yeah, that's a downhill from there sort of thing. Having looked at everything... And you have that blog, The Other Side of Truth, that we'll be pointing to at thepowercast.com. Do you have any ideas yet as to what you think is causing all this stuff to happen? Well, you guys have a poll, which I um, left a comment on in your discussion forums. I think, Gene, you put the poll up there. What is the explanation? I plead guilty. Guilty. What were we talking about? Oh, your <laughs> poll. Of course, the explanation for the UFO phenomenon. I voted for I don't know. I think everybody should vote for I don't know because nobody knows. It is a mystery. There are many different theories, or the better word would be hypotheses. Um, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, the extra-dimensional hypothesis, Mac Tony's with his crypto-terrestrial hypothesis, time travelers, those are all in your poll. I would up the null hypothesis, which basically states that it's all explainable in prosaic, earthbound terms, misidentifications, you know, weather balloons, top secret experiments, whatever. Who knows? 
it could be any one of those things, or it could be a number of those things in combination. Stan Friedman is often sort of um, pilloried by some people who don't like the ETH as being the ETH guy. Well, the truth is, Stan will sit there and say, look, I believe some, U I am convinced, rather, some UFO cases are extraterrestrial spacecraft. But he always, and people forget this, he has always left the door open to say, well, I don't know what some of these other ones are. Is it possible they could be valets extra-dimensional? Sure. I'm not concerned with that. He's only concerned with the ones that he thinks are ET. So even a guy like Stan, ardent defender and promoter of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, leaves the door open for other possible explanations. So that's why I always vote I don't know, because you, my dad always taught me you should never be afraid to say, if you don't know, that you don't know. And sure. I don't think any of us know. And anybody who says that they know is not being honest with themselves. And by implication, they're not being honest with you either. So, Paul, in the best evidence, you look at what you feel are 10 of the most compelling cases of UFOs in terms of being genuinely unidentified flying objects. Is there any specific element that is common to all 10 cases that might give us some clue as to what the origin of the things seen in these 10 cases might be? Now, see, that's why I like coming on the Paracast, because that's an interesting question that I haven't actually been asked yet. And you guys ask those kind of questions. I don't know. I would say that the one, there are two common elements in every case. One is the quality of the witnesses. As Stan says, these aren't the town drunks that are seeing things. These are sort of the creme de la creme of the witness pool that you could put together. But that doesn't tell you what they are. That just tells you that these are credible cases. And, mm -hmm. and they all have, except like the McMinnville case as a photo, the RB-47 case as, as radar and electronic countermeasures tracking. So there's things besides just the witnesses that, that help corroborate what the witness said. But the one thing that you do notice about these cases, or at least most of them, is that the object, the UAP, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, whatever you want to call it, moves and acts in ways that no natural phenomenon I know of, and I admit I'm not a science um, expert, but no natural phenomenon that science experts I know know of can explain. Does that mean that there isn't some sort of phenomenon on this planet that we don't know about yet that could explain it? No. It just means we don't know of one yet, especially a case like the RB47 case where there are things happening in that case that I don't think you can possibly explain by way of natural phenomenon, and I don't think you can possibly explain by way of, oh, it had to be one of our super secret airplanes, because the guys who were flying the RB47 were flying one of our super secret airplanes. They also flew missions with the U-2, the most super secret airplane of its time, and they knew what the U-2 was. So there wasn't anything in the sky that was going to fool these guys. That's what they were up there to do, was to detect uh, Russian signals, Soviet signals, to detect other planes. They were the best of the best. And this was something they saw. There's a visual sighting by the pilot and the co-pilot. So you see this bright light, so you have a visual sighting. You also get it tracked on your equipment in the plane, which was state-of-the-art, the electronic uh, detection equipment tracked by gr military ground radar, which confirmed what the plane was seeing, both visually and in terms of its own equipment. And as Brad Sparks pointed out to me, it is, as far as I know, the only case in UFO history, radar case, where not only could we bounce something off an object, ping, there it is, but the object actually sent signals back, which is an indication 
to me at least, of some form of intelligence. I don't know how else you can explain it. And so that, what to me, the RB47 case is the best case. There's no question it is on the list. I'll happily tell you that. I'll tell you it's one of the three best cases. And it's, you know, if I had my druthers, it would be number one. And maybe it is. Because it has all of that stuff. And then there's one other thing. This was 1957, by the way. If you put RB47 UFO into a search engine like Google, you'll be able to see synopses of the case. It was investigated by Dr. Jim McDonald, one of the great scientific ufologists back in the, in the 1960s, and by Brad Sparks in the years since. But what's really not known is it wasn't the only RB47 case. Other RB47 crews over the years had similar encounters with similar objects that performed in similar ways. And I interviewed a crew member who retired as a decorated colonel. Nobody had ever talked to him before. He's in the film. He had a similar experience, his crew, his RB-47 crew, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, flying over the Gulf of Mexico that was shorter than this classic case from 57, but basically in all respects mirrored what happened to the 1957 crew. And when you start hearing that it's not just a one-off, but these kind of incidents happen more often than the military would ever admit, then you sort of have to sit back and go, wait a second. What's going on here? And my final comment would be to your question, the one other thing that's common in most of these cases, in all of the military cases, the agency that's involved is the United States Air Force. And there's no question when you talk to military witnesses like Captain Bob Salas from Malmstrom, Colonel Charles Halt from the Rendlesham case, this colonel from the RB-47 case that I interviewed that will be revealed in the film, all of them say that the military covered whatever happened, covered it up. They were debriefed, told not to talk about it, and that was it. And you could, as one guy said to me, you know, you would find yourself in Alaska posted to Nome or someplace or out of the military out of the Air Force faster than you could shake a stick if you started talking about these things. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Before we go anywhere else, let me tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney back from a brief hiatus to nurse a cold. We're talking to Paul Kimball, documentary filmmaker, non-practicing attorney, (laughs) UFO and paranormal investigator. Did I miss anything? No, I don't think so. Um, Bon vivant. director. Yeah, Yeah, there you go. Man about town. Yeah, floozy. I don't know, whatever else. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I would say, either a renaissance man, that's the good spin, or jack of all trades, master of none. (laughs) That would be what my fiancé refers to me as, so there you go. Paul, a a case that's really captured my uh, my interest is the... um the Rendlesham Forest Bent Waters case. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had read the um, Left at Eastgate book that Larry Warren wrote and uh, was really uh, both fascinated and a little disturbed by this case. I want to ask you a question. In your looking into this case for best evidence, did you find that there was anybody else that had come forward to in any way corroborate the things that Larry Warren writes about in Left at Eastgate? No, um, I didn't, which doesn't mean that those things didn't happen. I actually interviewed, I ran into Larry at a conference I was speaking at in the United Kingdom. I was over there to interview Nick Pope and speak at Stuart Miller's UFO Review Conference uh, with Nick Redfern and some others, and I ran into Larry Warren. He came to the conference, so I thought, well, here I am. Why not? I interviewed Larry. He's not in the film because 
his claims are out there and they're difficult to verify. That doesn't mean, if Larry's listening, I found him actually a very nice guy and he seemed to truly believe what he was saying. But, you know, I can't, who can judge? I think Rendlesham is better looked at if you can strip away, as many of the British researchers have done, some of the more sensationalistic claims that have been made over the years and get down to the core of the case, which are the two sightings, one by uh, the security crew on the first night, led by Sergeant Jim Penniston, who claimed to actually have walked up and touched the object, and the, the other one, the, the team led by Colonel Halt, Lieutenant Colonel Halt as he was then, the deputy base commander, then went out and observed these lights, these objects in the forest for a period of hours. That is where the case should really focus in on, and I think as with any UFO case, which is not to say that Larry Warren is lying or not telling the truth or confused, although people have said that, I don't know, but you can't prove what Larry Warren is saying to be true. So let's right. put that aspect of the case aside and let's focus in on the stuff that we can show did actually happen. And I think those would be um, the two crews that went out, Penniston's guard team and then Halt the, uh, the next night. And there was enough weird stuff happening to those credible witnesses that I don't think you need to look much further than that to say that something very odd happened in Rendlesham Forest on those nights. And for those of our listeners who are not familiar with some of this backstory, what is the oddest thing that happened that night? Well, yeah, that's a really, that's a good question, too, because there were an awful lot of odd things happening. Mm. I think the oddest thing from what I can tell, assuming you believe Sergeant Penniston when he says that on the first night he went up and touched some sort of craft, and I haven't heard anybody who said that Penniston is, is anything other than a, a reliable, credible witness. I mean, that's pretty odd right there. But in terms of Colonel Halt, who we did interview for the film, I didn't interview Penniston. Um, you know, you only have four minutes and you only have so much money, so Halt was the one that we picked. In terms of his experience, you can listen to the tape. It's on the internet. Type in Colonel Charles Halt UFO tape Rendlesham or some form thereof. Google search. And you can actually listen to his tape is because he was recording what was going on in the forest. And seeing these lights, which some people have tried to explain as a lighthouse, I asked Colonel Halt about the lighthouse explanation. And he was very clear. He said, you know, I wasn't drunk. We weren't hippies on pot. I was a deputy base commander at a base where nuclear missiles were stored. I knew the lighthouse. I knew where it was. I was aware of where we were. It wasn't the freaking lighthouse. And no lighthouse light moves the way these lights were moving. And no lighthouse light flies overhead and then shines a beam, a laser-like beam, as he called it, down on the ground. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that just makes it a good UFO case. And the only way that I can think of that you could possibly debunk that case is to basically call Colonel Halt a liar and also all of the other witnesses who were involved a liar. That they cook this up and 27 years later they're still lying about it. And I just don't see how you can do that. <laughs> you know. So um, there's just enough witnesses who corroborate what the other witnesses are saying uh, to make it a, a really good case in that regard. So the lights, just the way the lights behaved, and uh, David this will pique your curiosity I guess um, we have animators up here who are recreating some of what Colonel Halt describes happened in the forest the way the lights moved and such and how they looked. And I think that's going to be a pretty cool visual interpretation, a recreation of, of what Colonel Halt saw, because he, he can tell you, here's how the lights moved. But unless you can actually see some representation of itself, I don't think you can understand how weird it really was. Yeah, you can't um, really appreciate it without the visual aid. Yeah, I, and I would like to think that 
you know, no military officer is perfect. Every military organization has oddballs and, and kooks and uh, bad guys. Colonel Custer pops to mind. But there's no evidence that Colonel Hall was one of those guys. In fact, he then got promoted and he went on to bigger and better things. Uh, and no evidence that the people who were under him uh, were any of those guys. So they are credible witnesses. And Nick Pope makes that uh, point in the film. That's one of the strong points about the Rendlesham case. The problem with Rendlesham, like a lot of high-profile UFO cases, guys, is it's been mucked up by a lot of superfluous stuff that has sort of gotten into the mix over the years. Roswell's a perfect example of that. And and that has sort of allowed the, the, the sort of disbelievers, as I call them, not skeptics, but disbelievers, to attack the Rendlesham case. And instead, I think what we need to do is kind of weed that stuff out and focus in on the really good stuff. So like I take it here that you don't dig Roswell, you don't favor that, you have problems with it. I do. Um, I always have. On the other hand, I don't dismiss Roswell. Roswell, as Stan Friedman would say, sits in, well, he wouldn't say this about Roswell, but I'll use his phrase, sits in my gray basket. I don't know. The Project Mogul explanation offered by Carl Flock and Bob Todd and, and Carl Korff and others has never fully convinced me that it's problematic. There are problems with that explanation, a number of them. And, and there are guys like David Rudiak and Stan Friedman and Kevin Randall who can talk much more intelligently about that than I can. On the other hand, Carl Flock and others um, point out that there are a number of problems and always have been with the extraterrestrial idea about the Roswell case and about many of the witnesses. So the Roswell case is a colossal mess, and I think it's probably entered or is very close to entering the realm of myth, legend, to the point where we're probably never going to know what really happened at Roswell one way or another, and we're certainly never going to convince everybody that any one explanation is the correct one, unless aliens come down and say, yeah, that was us, our bad, sorry, <laughs> you know, um, or unless the government comes out and says, yeah, you know, absolutely, it was aliens. That's the only explanation that will um, satisfy a certain group of people, and as long as that remains the case, then Roswell will always remain this legendary UFO case, part of our pop culture. I'll tell you what, that's got to be the other side of truth. On the Paracast, we've been talking to Paul Kimball. He's a documentary filmmaker. And Paul, just quickly tell us what your latest project is. Best evidence, top 10 UFO cases of all time. We polled a number of uh, serious ufologists and asked them what their 10 best cases were, developed a list out of that, and the 10 best cases have wound up in this film. It premieres in Canada on space, the Imagination Station. May 10th. It'll be on television New Zealand at an undisclosed date, but they've already bought it. And we have a uh, we have a British distributor, B7 Media, that is looking at selling it around the rest of the world once it's finally completed. And about Thanks for joining us on the Paracast. Thanks for having me, guys. Always fun. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. So, David, we know how Paul Kimball was corfed or yeah. treated by Cal Korf. How were you treated? Well, I started talking about it on the Paul Kimball segment where I had been approached by Korf to supply him with some of the research that I had done on the uh, Meyer image that I debunked. And it seemed to me that Cal, right off the right off the bat, was just making claims that were outrageous to me in private emails. So I questioned his statements to me, where he said, I'm going to take your stuff, I want to make a book out of it, and da-da-da-da-da. Now, Gene, as you well know, a number of the listeners know, I'm a published author. I've had a couple of best-selling books in the computer graphics realm, 
And uh, I've actually helped negotiate a number of publishing contracts for beginning authors, for, for authors that are fresh to the field. And I, I've done this really out of just my own desire to see the publishing industry change. So I have some familiarity with publishing contracts, even though I'm definitely not a lawyer like Paul Kimball. I don't even play one on TV. But I've negotiated a maybe about a half a dozen publishing contracts for uh, for novice authors to make sure that they're covered. And I've done this really more than anything else. I've never done it for money. It's always been out of a desire to sort of see, as I said, the publishing industry change in its uh, standards and practices. So when Corf approached me and said that he would cut a book deal for me with Prometheus and wanted to publish my stuff, I, of course, knew there was something not quite right with that. So I asked him to give me more details about what he was doing, and he starts in with this, just trust me, just trust me. And when anybody says, just trust me, that to me is the ultimate flag that says that they're up to something. That's right. Don't trust them. Exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, trust me, trust me, trust me. Well, I remember mm -hmm. the other phrase is, I'm honest as the day is long. There and they go. always say that on the first day of winter. There you go. Yeah, at the North Pole, they say it. So I, uh, I had some real issues, and I said to Corf, look, you're going to need to tell me more about what you're doing, about who you're working with, before I hand over anything to you. That's just a reasonable stance. And the minute I did that, he basically just did a 180 on me. He went from being, oh, you're my buddy, and you're going to help me take down Horn, to, oh, you're my enemy, and you're one of them, and you're just another self-proclaimed UFO expert. And at the time, I mean, I wrote to him saying, look, Cal, I'm not a UFO expert. I'm someone who has had some experiences, who has created with my friend Gene Steinberg this show to try to explore these topics. I don't ever, I'm certainly, I've never said on the show I'm a UFO expert or even a paranormal expert. I'm a student of the paranormal. That in no way qualifies me as having any special ability in this realm. I've brought my Photoshop knowledge to this field. I brought my experiences to, well, I didn't bring them. They brought me here. So immediately I saw this very weird passive-aggressive thing on his part that just really made me concerned about who this guy was, what he was doing, and... And speaking to Ritzman, Ritzman, who had had some email correspondence with Corf years ago, who thought rather highly of him as someone who has corresponded with Corf, Ritzman was also, I think, concerned about Corf's behavior. So the minute all this went down, um, Corf just basically made me into an enemy. He seems to have a very binary view of the world. You're either with him or against him. And so all of a sudden, I was against him. And, and then it really devolved into this terrible, uh, just a really distasteful situation where he essentially started to accuse me of attacking a quote-unquote Jewish community hero and leader, knowing that I was a child of a Holocaust survivor, because I wrote that to him. He then tried to turn that against me. And I, I have to tell you, I just saw red when he did that, because that's a topic that you don't, well, you don't talk about lightly when you're the child of a Holocaust survivor. You don't have that luxury. And it's just um, a certain line in the sand you shouldn't cross. And he crossed it. And he started essentially trying to defame me and trying to, to sort of turn me into a bad guy. And I, I just didn't 
I didn't appreciate that. I didn't appreciate being called uh, some kind of an attacker of a Jewish community hero and leader, referring, of course, to himself, because among everything else, apparently, he is the shining light of Judaism in Czechoslovakia, which is just ridiculous. And so that really pushed some of my buttons. And what then happened, well, it gets even more messed up than that, Gene, because he was on this uh, radio show that I've really come to hate, debating Michael Horn. And I called the show and got on the air in Korf's defense. And this is before I had all these negative interactions with Korf. This is when I was still having an email with him back and forth. I got on this show that he was debating Michael Horn on, and I tried to basically get Horn to be accountable for some of the statements he was making. You know, here I was trying to interject into the conversation some rationality, some responsibility, because Horn basically was on the show saying whatever he wanted to say, and of course defaming you and me and Ritzman, and you know, we're his punching gallery. He loves it. Well, actually, Horn is obsessed with us, which I think is rather kind of interesting. He went on a certain national radio show and also trashed you. Uh, that show, Coast to Coast, George Norrie's show with Art Bell, I wrote to them after Horn was on that show trashing me quite liberally and trashing my ability to analyze a photograph digitally, which is what I did with just one of the photographs. And as I said on the show before, Gene, anybody can look at any number of those pictures and see clearly their fabrications. This is not something that requires some serious degree of photographic expertise. I think a child could look at those pictures and know they're nonsense. I wrote to George Norrie and his producer and said, look, if you're going to have this guy on who's going to bring my name up and trash the work that I did on debunking one of these images, I think it's only fair and appropriate that you have me on to provide a rebuttal and to contest Horn's claims that I'm not capable of looking at an image and analyzing it. And, of course, it's just hysterical that Horn said, Biedney says it's a double exposure. Well, in fact, it's a triple exposure. Hey, it's fabricated. How's that? It's a faked image, whether it's a double exposure or a triple exposure. It's a fabricated image. It's nonsense. It's a lie. And it's a lie being used to promote a religious cult. Anyway, not that I have strong feelings about this. Obviously not. You're definitely holding back. <laughs> oh, God. So, um, you know, all of this basically has really made me sort of disgusted gene because now essentially to Korf, i'm some evil figure i'm some enemy of his of course the way that that guy sees the world is probably the way that michael horn sees the world where you're either with them or against them these guys are binary in their worldviews they're absolutely polar either you're good or you're evil there's no in between which, of course, pretty much means that these people are children. They don't understand any subtleties, any nuances of thought or of reason or logic. This is not something they're capable of, because essentially, emotionally, these people are children. And I'll happily go on the record saying that, because at this point, after having a conversation with someone like Paul Kimball, it's so refreshing to speak with an actual adult. It helps. Adults only allowed on the Paracast, including our next guest, Kevin Randall. Yeah. 
I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane's CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. Kevin, as we're taping this conversation, there is a post on criticalthinkers.org that is titled, Kevin Randall, Yet Another Lie About Roswell. And it says that UFO researcher Kevin Randall has been caught, in uppercase letters, lying about the Roswell UFO crash yet again. Kevin, what is it with this guy and the work that you've done on Roswell? Why is he obsessed with you? Well, I wish I knew. I have no clue as why he's obsessed. I know that he was on his buddy's radio program a couple of weeks ago, and he had been saying that um, my rock service wasn't nearly as important as I'd made it out to be, and that mm. uh, the Army had only called me forward because they didn't have uh, enough soldiers to um, fill out what they needed to do, which, yeah, that's the purpose of the Guard and the Reserve is if the Army active forces are somehow... Over, overtaxed, and they call on the Guard and Reserve to fill in. So, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Uh, I don't know what I'd said in his hearing to suggest my service was anything more than it really was. And so I posted on my blog a note about this, and I, I mentioned I didn't hear the show, but a friend had alerted me to what he had said. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that just drove him buggy, because then he's running around saying, well, it's just hearsay evidence. It was hearsay evidence. But the interesting thing is he never denied it, that he said yeah. those things. He yeah. was just saying it was hearsay evidence. Well, hearsay evidence can be accurate, actually. So I don't, I don't know what it is that, that has gotten his dander up against me, other than I responded to what he'd said about me, and I thought a very 
cordial fashion, and then he just went nuts. Well, as it turns out, Kevin, I actually did hear most of that show that was on a couple of weeks ago. That was the X-Zone radio show, and um, we were just talking about this with Paul Kimball, and we're really perplexed as to why this fellow McConnell has given Calcorf, there we've gone and said the name, um, a platform to attack people. It just seems like it's sort of odd and, and certainly counterproductive. What in particular about the research work that you've done does he seem to have some major problem with? He's annoyed at my initial support of Frank Kaufman. Frank Kaufman was a guy who claimed to be on the inside, claimed to have all sorts of inside knowledge, and provided us with some documentation, evidence to prove that he said he was who he said he was. Mm -hmm. Later on, we learned after he had died, uh, Frank Kaufman had died, we learned that he made the whole thing up. So that, that it turned out Korf was right about the credibility of Frank Kaufman, but for some reason he's just so annoyed at me for that. And I, I pointed out that I learned about Frank Kaufman from Walter Hott, a fairly credible Roswell witness, mm -hmm. and that when I asked Walter Hott about Frank Kaufman, Hott told me that anything that... that uh, Kaufman told me was I could consider golden. So he, he's annoyed about that. He's annoyed about the initial support of Glenn Dennis, the Roswell mortician who claimed to have have activity with a with a nurse out at the base who told him about the retrieval operation and the recovery of the bodies, which I take some credit for exposing Glenn Dennis's story, but the real credit goes to a, a researcher who used to live in Arizona named Vic Goyabek, who had gone out of his way to gather all sorts of documentation and could never find a nurse by the name that uh, Glenn Dennis had given her. And when confronted with that information, Glenn Dennis said, well, I, I never gave you guys the right name. I, I told you originally it wasn't going to be the right name, which, of course, he never had. Hmm. And at that point, I, I, I said, well, that just kills uh, Glenn Dennis's story because now he's, now he's changing a critical piece of the evidence. When we were able to prove the negative that no nurse by the name he'd given her uh, existed. So, right. so Korf is annoyed that, that we got some of that wrong. He's also, he was also annoyed with a woman named Frankie Rowe, whose father had been a firefighter, and said that you know, she's been discredited. But, but that turns out not to be true. He, she's discredited in the eyes of the, the bunkers. But her story is still credible, that things that she said are, are not at odds with the Roswell case. So he's, he's off on this anti-Roswell crusade, and I guess because I'm one of the proponents of an alien spacecraft crash in Roswell, he's decided that I'm a bad guy. One of the things that I found especially annoying about the stuff that Korsman's saying recently about the field in general, and he's been attacking you, Kevin, he's been attacking me, he's been attacking Paul Kimball, but just recently he made some statements about the reported UFO incident at O'Hare Airport in early November 2006 being a hoax meant to drum up interest in the upcoming 60th anniversary of the Roswell episode which I think is a, perhaps straining a bit at credulity in terms of this idea that uh, the Roswell incident needs any drumming up. Do you find, Kevin, that people are still actively interested in the Roswell episode to the point where they're willing to actively seek out information about it and to discuss it in a rational way? There are still people investigating the case. I have a hand in some of the investigations myself. But there's a, a large number of people, and they're, and they're looking at other aspects of it to uh, attempt to determine what exactly happened, who saw what in, in Roswell. But to suggest that 
a case out of Chicago mm-hmm. somehow was to drum up interest in, in, in the case in Roswell uh, months and months before the 60th anniversary is preposterous. The, yeah. If I was going to drum up interest in the Roswell case, I'd, the sighting would have been in the Albuquerque airport or the El Paso <laughs> airport, both, both places much, much closer to, to Roswell to kind of garner some interest in it. Uh, well, maybe the theory comes from people who don't have any knowledge of geography. They don't have a map at hand. No, no, they well, don't know what MapQuest is or anything like that online. And, you know, it's just it, it's a, a preposterous idea, but it fits in with with Cal Corp's other preposterous ideas. The uh, the idea he's got a five hundred book contract with somebody. The idea that if you if you uh, request it, he'll come to your house and cook an American meal for you if you live in the Czech Republic. Or uh, well, maybe he needs the money. You know, cooks get a lot of money if they. No, come to your no, house. no, 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 guys. This is another way to meet those Czechoslovakian girls. You see, this is. <laughs> This is not rocket science. Cal Doesn't Watson. he have a wife or a girlfriend or something? No, well, we don't, we don't know. We don't. We don't know. I somehow, and Cal, if you're listening to this, I'm sure you are. I don't mean to be mean, but I'm guessing you haven't been on a date in a while, pal. <laughs> that's that's kind of cruel. I, I, I know. Have, I, I have no idea. I just, yeah. I, I look at this stuff, and, and I, I wonder if people actually believe it. What's interesting is he'll go after a witness who cannot provide good, solid documentation for a claim he makes, and, and rightly so. But Cal talks about belonging to this super-secret Israeli organization, and the only thing you can find if you Google it refers you back to Cal Corp. Right. It doesn't right. get you any information from an independent source. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Organization exists. If you had a ta- witness doing that to him, he'd go nuts. A self-fulfilling prophecy, indeed. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Kevin Randall, prolific writer and UFO investigator, joining us. And we're talking about what we call to be charitable, the strange case of Cal Korf. Now, one thing I suggested in the other part of the show when we were talking to Paul Kimball is that Cal Korf may be the modern day Alan Abel. Alan Abel was the guy who ran around the 1960s saying, we need to ban naked animals. In other words, he was a put on artist. So I is, remember that. That, that, was, that was great. <laughs> so is Cal Korf hoping to be the modern day Alan Abel? Well, I, I don't know what his motivation is, but the one thing I will say, which is the unfortunate byproduct of this, he does have us talking about him. Well, that's something that we approach with some degree of trepidation. I have to say, guys, that I'm not particularly thrilled that we're devoting any amount of time to Korf and his wackiness. I think that what I had said on the segment with Paul Kimball is, is probably closer to the truth than anything else. This is someone who is just desperate for any attention, whether it's negative, positive, or otherwise. This is somebody that so desperately wants to be discussed. And um, an interesting note along those lines is that Korf had gone on the website Wikipedia and had created an extensive entry about himself. Basically, it was Cal Korf's promo piece put up on Wikipedia. Now, Wikipedia 
is a community moderated and managed website that does not look very kindly on self-promotion. And so I complained to Wikipedia. I think some other people did as well. And essentially what happened is that his entry was gradually whittled down to the point where people felt that he shouldn't have an entry on there at all. And ultimately, it was deleted. But the idea is that Cal basically was just desperate to have some level of credibility. And, and it makes me wonder about so many of the personalities that we see in the UFO field. And Kevin, you, you've been dealing with this a lot longer than, than I have. I know Gene has been involved in one form or another with UFO field for many years. Hundreds of years. Well, you know. Uh, this is to, to, to thousands, me, millions, billions, billions and billions. But, um, you know, t to me, this is uh, kind of one of those places where people who who desperately want attention, they come and play in the sandbox. And this brings me to, to a question for you, Kevin. Why did you get involved with this field? What What brought you to investigate Roswell and to put some amount of your credibility on the line with this stuff? I always blame my mother for this because she had an interest in science fiction. And there's not a huge step from science fiction into UFOs. I mean, science fiction deals with alien races, interstellar flight, uh, first contact, those sorts of things. And in UFO research, we do the same thing. I began when I was a teenager, and it's just something that's held a fascination for me. Mm -hmm. I, I also wanted to be a writer. And one of the things that you can do is write about what you know. And back in the 1970s, yep. there were six or seven magazines that dealt with UFOs. So it wasn't a nut, hard nut to crack back then. And so I ended up writing a lot of uh, articles for various magazines about UFOs and, and, and then attempted to put together some books. My first, my first books were fiction because an agent had come to me and said, can uh, I've got a contract to write for some books about the Green Berets in Vietnam. Could you do that? And I said, yes. If she'd come to me and says, I've got a contract for some books about nurses and hospitals, can you do it? I would have said yes. Because, I mean, we're talking about something that's, that's already set up. So part of it was a, a desire to be a writer. Some Part of it was a, a desire to understand what was going on in the UFO field that, that brought me into this thing. When I was approached to enter the Roswell investigation, I, I came out of the 1960s where we believed that these tales of crashed flying saucers were hoaxes. We, we looked at the, the Behind the Flying Saucers by Frank Scully, which was thoroughly discredited by J.P. Kane of the San Francisco Chronicle. So when the Roswell story, when I first encountered the Roswell story, my inclination was it wasn't true. And when the Center for UFO Studies asked me to get involved in their investigation, and I, I think they asked me for, for one reason, was because of my military background, and a lot of the people you're dealing with were, were military, and, and I could bring some insight into that, that military background would be helpful to them. I went down to Roswell thinking that we'll spend a few days down there, we'll discover an answer, and that'll be the end of it. But after about our third trip, I realized that there's an awful lot of other stuff going on down there that we, need, we needed to look into, and there could be a book about it. So I slowly changed my mind about the reality of the Roswell case, accepting that it was real, and or, or meaning crash of an alien spacecraft, and looking looking for the explanations. And we went through the balloon explanations. There was a big controversy in around 1990, 1991, where John Keel, a fairly well-known UFO researcher or a fairly known paranormal researcher, sure determined that, that it was a Fugo balloon, which was a Japanese balloon bomb. And right. I remember that when it happened at the time, yes. Would you explain to our listeners exactly what Kiel was getting at before you give us a little bit of a reality check on that? 
Kiel was suggesting that during World War II, the Japanese had discovered the jet stream, and they put up 9,000 balloons into this jet stream with mechanisms on it that it would travel the Pacific Ocean in about two days, and it would go through a cycle of, of, of arising during the, the heat of the day and falling during the uh, cool of the evening. And after it had gone for two or three cycles, it would drop a number of bombs, some of them fragmentation of high explosives and some of them uh, incendiary, hoping to start forest fires in the Northwest, for example. Well, of those 9,000 bombs, around 250 actually fell on the United States, caused a little bit of damage here and there. They got as far east as Michigan, as far north as parts of Canada, as far south as Mexico City, and six people in Oregon were killed by one. And it's the only time that American civilians were killed during World War II by an enemy bombing attack, if you will. Hmm. So Kiel's proposition was that in 1947, the fellows who found the Japanese balloon bomb in New Mexico identified it as something else because they were attempting to keep the myth of American invulnerability alive, and that was why they'd, they'd hidden this information, because nobody knew about the Japanese balloon bombs. Well, if you take a look at the history, what you learn is that right after the war ended, in fact, just prior to the war ending, there were some stories about Japanese balloon bombs in the paper, and the FBI visited people and said, hey, can, can you not print this story because we don't want to give the Japanese any clue as how successful they, they're, they're being, that the bombs are actually getting here. So that happened. But after the war, there were, there were stories in the New York Times, there were stories in the Washington Post, there were stories in some of the major magazines at the time talking about the Japanese balloon bombs. So by the time you get to Roswell in 1947, anybody who cared to know about them already did. So Kiel's theory fell apart at that point. Now, I talked to any number of people in Roswell about this specifically, and the idea that it was a balloon bomb, and they were all, no, it wasn't, wasn't a balloon. Jesse Marcel Sr., whom I did not talk to, he died before I began the investigation, but he was the Air Intelligence Officer at Roswell, and he would have recognized the balloon if that's what it had been. I mean, the guy wasn't a, a, a dummy. So, so Keel floated, if you will, and pardon the pun, the yeah. idea of a balloon bomb. Well, that didn't work out. I think Keel has since dropped that. But Keel said one thing in the, in, the, in the commentary of our discussions in the pages of Fate magazine, which, which turns out to be rather appropriate. He said, I suppose by the turn of the century, there'll be hundreds of people clamoring for attention about their involvement in the Roswell case. And it turned out that turned out to be right. There's an awful lot of people who've come forward and said, yes, I had something to do with Roswell. I did this. I did that. And a lot of them turn out not to be telling us the truth. A lot of them turn out to be exaggerating their importance uh, in, the, in the Roswell case. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com 
where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. Got to stop here and tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Author Kevin Randall joins us, and we spent part of the early part of this episode and the previous segment talking about the strange case of Cal Korf, a breakdown, a hoax, putting us on, who knows. Now we're getting into the nitty-gritty of Roswell, 60th anniversary of Roswell this year. Any hope, Kevin, will get any more significant information, partly because... Very few of the survivors are left to talk to these days. The problem is, we go back to the mid-1990s, and the Air Force got interested in the Roswell case. And I'm thinking if it's just another UFO report, why does the Air Force care what a bunch of UFO nuts think about it? Now, we're saying that Roswell was extraterrestrial, the Air Force knows it and covered it up. So the, the, the Air Force investigated it. And what's interesting about this, their big investigation, and remembering there's an awful lot of Air Force officers who were involved in some fashion about this, they don't talk to them. They instead talk to the guys with Project Mogul, which is another balloon explanation for Roswell. But this one is a top-secret balloon project, and, and the skeptics make much of this because it's top-secret. Yeah, the project was top-secret, but the equipment wasn't. The equipment was off-the-shelf weather balloons. So if what Mac Brazel had found in his field had been a weather balloon, he would have recognized it as such because he'd found weather balloons before. Had it been a weather balloon, Jesse Marcel would have recognized it as such. Had it even been a Project Mogul balloon, there's a possibility Marcel would have recognized it because the guys launching the Mogul balloons had actually gone to Roswell in June of 1947 to uh, solicit their help in tracking their balloons. And the guys at Roswell said, no, we got, we got more important things to do. So it kind of annoyed the, the uh, Mogul people. The other thing is Mogul was this array of balloons, uh, 15 or 20 balloons connected together, and they were required by the forerunner to the FAA, Federal Aeronautics administration to post notums, notices to airmen when they launched the balloons so that guys flying airplanes would be on the lookout for the balloons where they were launched and what direction they were going. So even the launches weren't secret. Two or three days after the Roswell Army Airfield announced they had a flying saucer, in some of the local newspapers, and by local I mean Alamogordo newspaper, and then newspapers around the country, were actually pictures from mogul launches. So while the project was top secret, the equipment wasn't, there was nothing for the people not to recognize. So when the Air Force investigates it, they talk to the mogul people. They don't talk to General Exxon, who was at Wright Field in 1947, talk to us about the material coming in, the bodies coming in, who flew over the debris field or, or the, the sites in New Mexico himself. They don't ask for the audio taped interviews I conducted with Major Edwin Easley, who was the provost marshal at Roswell in 1947, and his guys would have gone out to guards. They don't talk to him. Instead, they talk to Sheridan Cavett, who was the counterintelligence officer in Roswell in 1947. 
And Cabot says, no, nah, it was a weather balloon. I knew I, it was a balloon. I knew it the minute I saw that. The next question to me should have been, did you bother to communicate this rather valuable bit of intelligence to Jesse Marcel, who's on the field with you, so he doesn't run back to Roswell and tell Blanchard, we've got a flying saucer, and Blanchard announces it to the world. Now, Cabot keeps this information to himself, never telling anybody until we get to the Air Force investigation. But interestingly, when I first interviewed Cabot, he said, no, I wasn't even in Roswell in 1947. Then he says, yeah, I was assigned to the base in 1947, but I hadn't physically arrived. And now he's talking to the Air Force guys and saying, yeah, I was out there and I went out and picked up a weather balloon. So he talked to that guy. They don't talk to people who were at the, uh, at the base. They don't talk to people who would have some knowledge. They don't request the notes, the audio tapes, the videotapes of the officers we've interviewed who talk about this, they instead go to Project Mogul and guys they know are going to say, well, it was a weather balloon, you dummies. Now, uh, Kevin, I I'm just curious to get your take on um, a specific book. When we talk about all of the different spins put on Roswell, they go from balloons to stuff that's even, to me... Stranger, there's um, an author by the name of Nick Redfern we've had on the show before, and he has a book out called Body Snatchers in the Desert, The Horrible you Truth. You mean BS in the Desert. <laughs> well, okay, I guess we know what you think of this. I mean, what's your take on what uh, on what Redfern's written? I, I'm just curious. Uh, preposterous. Yeah. Absolutely preposterous. You know, if you if you want to argue Roswell legitimately, you cannot say with beyond a shadow of a doubt it was extraterrestrial. But what we can say is Redfern's idea that they were launching deformed Japanese in yeah, I, it, it Mexico seems a little out there to me. Yeah, yeah. there's no evidence for it. Uh, on my blog, I did a um, review of this book, and then he uh, and I also I also uh, did a did a copy of the review to. Fate magazine, and they mm -hmm. gave they gave Nick Redfern an opportunity to comment on my review, which I thought right. was very fair of them sure. uh, to do that. But but I found nothing in his book. I found nothing in the evidence that is a compelling explanation for Roswell, which is kind of funny because you know, fifteen twenty years ago, I was saying to people, if I could prove that it was some sort of a an attempt to put people into space and they were killed in the process and it was a cover-up, I would have a much easier time selling that book for a lot more money than the idea right. that it was an ex extraterrestrial spacecraft. And mm -hmm. then Nick Renford comes out, and, and that is, in essence, what he's saying, that deformed Japanese were responsible for the tales of the bodies and, and all of that. I, I think if you look at the history of the project, I think it's 713 that he talked about in Mongolia, where they were, che uh, they, they were actually using human subjects to test uh, chemical weapons and that sort of thing. You find out that when the Soviets overran that, the, the, the Japanese basically killed everybody involved in it so that there wouldn't be that sort of problem uh, later on. So that when you go two years down the road, to 1947 and they have this recovery it just it just doesn't make good sense from a historical standpoint either it turns out that there have been other stories of crashes that even predate roswell i know that years ago i had heard about the 1897 episode in aurora texas and i always thought well that that sounds kind of odd uh you've done some research on that haven't you I think I may have been the first researcher to actually set foot in Aurora, Texas, prior to the the big explosion of interest in the case. I was mm -hmm. there in 1970, I think it was. Went to the graveyard, looked at that, uh, talked to some people around there. Uh, at the time, I was there 
the attitude in Aurora, Texas, well, not never happened. Didn't happen. It was a, it was a joke. It was a hoax. Since that time, we've got all kinds of information about Aurora, Texas, being authentic, and a lot of people saying that they, their research has suggested that something truly happened, tru, truly extraordinary happened there. So my questions become: A, what are the follow-up stories? Uh, you would expect if there was really a flying spaceship crash in Aurora, Texas, there'd be follow-up stories, but there are none. Right. Uh, you'd expect people who wrote the history of Wise County, and in Aurora, Texas, is in Wise County, Texas, and there there were a couple of histories written within a decade of 1897 that never mentioned this thing. And you would think that had it been a legitimate event, that there would at least be some mention of it, because everybody in the town seemed to have been involved. And when you check out the history of some of the people, T.J. Weems, who was mm-hmm. supposed to be the Signal Corps officer who was in Aurora, Texas, and investigated and had something profound to say about it. And, and in 1897, when you say Signal Corps, think intelligence, because the Signal Corps was not quite the communications beast it is today, but it, it housed also intelligence. In fact, Signal Corps was the first people that bought airplanes for, for the Army, so the first Army aviators were Signal Corps officers. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Faracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to Kevin Randall, author, Man About Town. He's also a man about town, guys. All right, he didn't know that. The real truth about Kevin Randall. Now it can be revealed. We're talking about the Signal Corps back in 1897. So this was the equivalent of the CIA or what? No, just Army intelligence. But but when you look into T.J. Weems, you discover he was a local blacksmith. He wasn't a Signal Corps officer. Uh, you talk to the people, they say, well, Judge Proctor, the, the, the farm where this thing crashed, or the ranch where it crashed, into the windmill, didn't have a windmill back in 1897. Then you learn, well, supposedly he had two. But, but the real point is, if something like this had happened, you'd expect follow-up stories. And there are none. And if you look at the history of 1897, March and April of 1897, you find an awful lot of stories about this great airship traveling around the United States. Oftentimes they suggest it is a new mysterious invention uh, coming out of California. There's a lot of stories in Texas where uh, reporters talk to the pilots of the craft, and they're on their way to bomb the Spanish in in, uh, Cuba or they're doing some kind of experiments. The thing landed in Waterloo, or maybe it crashed in Waterloo, Iowa, and for two days it was a big story until the guys were recognized as local residents and the story dried up there. The the airship crashed all over the United States. It was seen to blow up. It was seen to uh, come apart. So in 1897, you had an awful lot of these stories, and the Aurora, Texas story fits into the rest of the hoaxes from, from the 1897 airship. So much for that one. Well, now we can just take that and toss it into the can. <laughs> well, I always thought... It, but it comes it, up again and again, and in fact, the History Channel just did on it last week. 
and talking about, well, here's the well where the windmill stood, and they picked up debris and threw it down this well, and the people who owns the well won't let us go down there and look for the debris that's leaching into the soil and causing all kinds of bizarre illnesses in the aurora, Texas. Yeah, I remember, was it a long time ago, I forget the name of the UFO investigator, but he actually made the National Wire saying, this is in the 60s or 70s, I'm going to go out there, and we're going to dig it up, and we're going to find an alien body or something. And, I believe that was Hayden Hughes. Hayden Hughes. And he, I believe at the time he lived in Oklahoma City. That's right. And he That's made, the one. he made a splash about going to exhume the body. There's been a number of subsequent reports. I, I, well, I'm really sorry. I can't remember who it was. Produced a report on the Aurora, Texas crash. And they had gone to the cemetery. They lived in Texas. They'd spent some time in the cemetery and they'd gone through the records and discovered that there was no record of this of this burial of this mysterious being uh, that supposedly was found there. So, you, you know, you have to look at all of that sort of thing and understand that a lot of this stuff just doesn't make sense in, in the uh, concepts of what's going on today. And you've got, you've got to look at it. You know, I had this thing really blown up in Aurora, Texas. Don't you think there'd have been somebody around there to follow up on it? And there'd been subsequent stories in the newspaper about this major event that took place. You'd have to think at the time there would have been no government or military mechanism to cover up such a thing that it would have been right in the front pages of the papers that it would indeed have been a major episode in the history of the town and also if there had been a burial correct me if i'm wrong wouldn't all burial events all funeral events be recorded with the local church um Not i would think the church there was a record kept at the uh, cemetery in aurora mm-hmm. and those records suggest nothing of the kind so so you would expect that and 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 you're right about that there's there's no subsequent stories about it it was just the the one story and i believe that where i found it was in the dallas morning news i believe it was the dallas morning news that talked about the aurora texas crash but there's just really nothing nothing to it and the important point is when i was there the longtime residents and some of them were still alive because this is 1970 so if you were born in 1890, for example, you'd have been seven years old at the time. And in 1970, you'd have been 80 years old. So, you know, there's a, there's a connection there. You, you could find right. people who were around in 1897. They said it, it didn't happen. And the people at the Wise County Historical Society told me, yeah, it didn't happen. We wished it had, but it didn't happen. And now here we are in 2007, 110 years later talking about the Aurora, Texas crash, and yeah. if it was something legitimate. Yeah. This kind of um, brings to mind something, Kevin, that it seems that as we move away from any historical event, as years pass, the opportunities for there to be distortions of stories and misinformation introduced into the stream of the story really seem to get to the point where after, let's say, 50 or 60 years, it gets so difficult to verify just about anything does this suggest to you, someone who has devoted a good amount of their time studying the Roswell crash or the reported Roswell incident, does it suggest to you that maybe we need to find episodes like what happened in Varginha in Brazil that are much more uh, contemporary, much more current, because potentially the amount of time has not been significant, so maybe it's easier to get untarnished information in those kinds of episodes? I believe that any number of eyewitness studies show that the closer you are to the actual event, the more accurate the memories. Mm-hmm. And so that, yeah, that that's something. If you can get to the witness within a couple of hours or a couple of days, the memories are going to be much more solid than they are today. Sure. And in fact, back in the mid-1970s, I investigated a case here in 
in Iowa about a couple who'd seen a, a flying saucer or, or seen some strange lights in the sky, let's put it that way. And you take a look at the illustrations that they produced right after the event. They're basically star-like lights in the sky. And a few weeks later, talking to the female witness, well, now suddenly it's a, it's a disc-shaped object with a huge dome on it. And a couple of weeks after that, she produced another drawing, and now there's two figures inside the dome. And so you can see the, the progression of her memory as she sort of confabulated her memories, which doesn't mean she was consciously lying, but as, it event, as the event got further and further in the distant past and she thought about it, she began to add these details, which I think made her more comfortable because she was badly frightened by the original event. Right. Well, I went out to the location and was sitting there one night looking up, and I saw the same phenomenon they did, and I discovered that if the uh, runway, depending on the runway they're using at the airport, you'd see the landing lights of the airplane. And the police said, well, you know, we went out to the airport and there were no commercial flights in. Well, yeah, no commercial flights, so what? Uh, yeah. All kinds of general aviation going on, guys. you got to look beyond just commercial flights. I I'm convinced that what they saw were landing lights of airplanes. But the real point is it started with lights in the sky, and within four weeks she had a drawing, and I've got copies of all the drawings, of this dome disc with lights around the bottom of it and a big light in the bottom and these two... Yeah humanoid shapes inside the thing. Actually, that really closely mirrors a recent set of videos that have surfaced from a um, filmmaker who's been shooting this, these, what are supposedly anomalous light activities over Lake Erie, and pushing this as being, ooh, it's UFO footage because I know it is. And indeed, um, one starts to dig into the details, and a number of us did, and we found out that, yeah, absolutely, you've got these stacked lights that look like they're planes in a holding pattern, and gee, those lights just off to the left, that happens to be an airport. You know, you don't have to dig very far, Kevin, but I just want to just get back to that um, episode in Virginia. This is uh, something that we've talked to Dr. Roger Lear, a person who's written a book about what is being promoted basically as the new Roswell, and it happened supposedly in January of 1996. I'm curious to know if you know anything about this case, if you've looked into this case at all. Just uh, on a, on a preliminary basis mm -hmm. and looked at some of the stuff and, and I was not overly impressed with the information that came out of Brazil at the time. Mm -hmm. I know that there are some people who think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, but, but it just seemed to me that the initial witnesses were more hysterical than accurate, and it just seemed to me that the information seemed to be filtered through some people that were less than credible. Mm. So I, I haven't been very impressed with that that case at all. That's just my impression. If somebody's got better information, I'll take a look at it. And you know, I, there's always a possibility that I've I've made a mistake. I've made one or two of them in the past. Well, that's I'm just you know, I'm curious to know your stance on that. It, Gene and I have talked about this a lot on the show. It sometimes seems that what happens in the in the UFO field is that. And I'm not suggesting that you engage in this. I'm, I'm saying that this is something that we just see as a pattern, and I'm curious to know what you're feeling about this is, that people end up getting, over time, vested in a particular case or a particular explanation of a particular case. And what happens over time, sometimes, not all the time, but new information surfaces, new witnesses step forward that maybe are credible, and that it almost seems like people... A lot of people in this field tend to guard their position almost as if this is was a child of theirs. Instead of really being real researchers, looking at new information that comes forward and saying, okay, you know what, we need to reevaluate the case in the light of this new information. 
You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And we give our apologies to David for interrupting him mid-sentence, but we are on the final section of the show where we're sharing the time with Kevin Randall. And he's a prolific author, both fact and science fiction. And we're talking here about something which is near and dear to my heart, which is that people sometimes get so married to their theories, their pet theories, their pet ideas, that it kind of works against them. Because now they're so busy defending the indefensible that maybe they have lost the knack of doing proper research. Am I getting it, David? That's pretty much the gist of it. I was curious to know what Kevin's feelings are about the people he's spoken to in this field. Kevin, you've been doing this for a long time. And I'm guessing that you've spoken to just about everybody who's had a position, who's staked out a particular case and worked with it over years. What's your take on this phenomenon? It's not limited just to UFOs. It's, it, academia suffers from the same thing. Right. That, that you'll have people staking out a, a, a theory or a position, and no matter what the evidence is or where it has gone, they're going to maintain that because that's their position. They can't look at the new evidence and say, gee whiz, that kind of alters things a little bit, does it? Exactly. And, and, and we have a similar problem in UFO research where people are absolutely convinced of something being true that they're not going to look at the evidence that takes them in another direction. And, and I can point to any number of, of arenas in the UFO field where, where you can find that entrenched mentality, whether it is alien abductions or cattle mutilations or the Roswell case or MJ-12, you end up with any number of researchers who have staked out a claim in those arenas, and they're not going to reevaluate that claim at this point, no matter what the what the evidence happens to be or what it shows. And instead of of reevaluating the evidence, what they do is attack the person right. who suggests that maybe mm-hmm. there's other information that might be more accurate or or better for understanding what's going on. What's the psychological mechanism that makes people do this? 
I think it's just not wanting to be wrong. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a question of, of not being able to admit to making a mistake that somehow your intellect is superior to anybody else's. And, and if, if you've taken a position where well, that's got to be the right position, it can't be something else. And there are many, many people who feel that way. I, I, maybe the best example is the face on Mars. I mean, you take a look at the original photograph of this anomaly on Mars, and it looks an awful lot like a face. And if there's a, yeah. this creation on Mars, well, it, it answers all the questions. Interstellar flight is possible because somebody got to Mars and created this thing, and it certainly wasn't human agency that did it. So it had to be somebody from outside the solar system. Well, when NASA went back and photographed that anomaly again with better equipment at better angles at a different time of day, oh, it, totally it turns out apart. to be a it turns out to be um, natural phenomena. It's yeah. a lighting yeah. and the, the way the hill is shaped. And there are people who are still arguing about the face on Mars and how about this is a conspiracy by NASA and <laughs> I don't know who all to suggest that there isn't a face of Mars. And I'm thinking if I'm NASA and I can discover an alien artifact on another planet, boy, is that going to increase my budget? I you have think so, right? absolutely <laughs> no reason to hide this information if it's accurate. And, and they've, they've photographed the thing any number of times since then, and yet you still got the, the face on Mars proponents. We, we see this constantly right now on the Paracast forums. There's a thread that keeps coming back to life, like a cockroach has had its head ripped off about the moon landings <laughs> being oh, boy. Well, it's just the fake moon landing stuff. You know, People refuse to believe that we reach the moon which I personally just, it's one of those things that drives me absolutely crazy. Here is the crowning achievement of the 20th century, for my money, getting to the moon, and people will sit there and say, we didn't do it, look at the photographs NASA has, they're retouched, look at this, how was their dust raised by the rover, how could that be? I mean, I've always said to people that the most important image to come out of the 20th century, without any question in my mind, is that infamous, classic, quintessential picture of the Earth in space. This Absolutely. Is... Here's another way to go. Uh, yeah. At the turn of the last century, meaning 18, the 1800s into the 1900s, mm-hmm. the 19th century and the 20th century, there were 15 people traveling the country claiming to be the real Jesse James. Well, you know, 14 <laughs> of them had to be lying. <laughs> I mean, there's no other conclusion to draw. And, of course, the 15th was lying, too, because Jesse James was gunned down, as we all know. Uh, and, and, and the DNA is now putting, I guess, in the, in the grave in, in Missouri. But, I mean, it's that sort of thing. You get an event, and you've got all kinds of people showing up, talking about their involvement in it. I don't know how many survivors there were of the Custer Massacre at the, at the end of the 19th century, men running around saying that they were with Custer, and they managed to get out of the five companies who were, who were annihilated. And, and, and there may have actually been one one guy who got out and he was uh, one of the scouts named Curly and nobody wanted to believe that he had gone in with Custer to the, the, the final bit of the massacre and managed to get out by pretending he was a Sioux which I thought was very bright of a guy <laughs> but he wasn't real articulate and he couldn't speak English really well so people just dismissed his story. He might be the only one that did get out but there were any number of guys running around claiming to have survived the Custer massacre and how many people are claiming service in Vietnam who probably couldn't find it on a map. In I think it was the 1990 census they asked Asked uh, if you had been a Vietnam veteran, and 13 million people said yes, they were. 
which meant like 90% of them were lying. It just goes on in, in any endeavor you care to mention that people are going to make up their participation in it. They're going to defend the indefensible. They're going to stake out their claim, and that's what it's going to be. I've always been convinced that Carl Flock wrote the anti-Roswell book because by the time he got to the table, that was the only chair left for him was to right. do that it. That was the only position that was open. Well, I was just going to say, and, and Carl's probably spinning in his grave when I say that to him. I mean, we became pretty friendly before he passed away. But I always kind of felt that was the only chair left for him, so he, he sat down in it. Tell you folks, we're just about out of time, unfortunately. Sad to say, because we can go on for weeks, months, years, and centuries. We want to thank very much Kevin Randall for joining us on the Paracast. What are your latest projects that people might want to look into? I've got some stuff coming out from Fate Magazine for the uh, 60th anniversary of, of Roswell. I have a blog, which is cleverly at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And Kevin Randall is all one word, and Randall is spelled R-A-N-D-L-E. And you can read some of the, the latest stuff there. Uh, kind of a defense of Frankie Rowe is the last thing I post. It, it, it also deals a little bit with, with astronomy because I'm, fasc- I'm fascinated by that. So there were a number of columns about Pluto being demoted to a dwarf planet. So it's a little bit of everything. I hope that you come back and speak with us in the future about Love what you to. found to be some of the more compelling and convincing f- uh, photographs of UFOs that you've encountered. Well, I'd love to do it anytime. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.